Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Nathan Collier with you here today with a brief intro to today's podcast. What you're about to hear is actually audio taken from a recent session that we do on occasion here at Pursuit. It's called Unlocking the Power of Value-Based Pricing and Introduction to AFAs. Now, this is one of the most popular and highest rated sessions that we run here at Pursuit. That's why we come back to it time and time again. And, and this edition of it is, is no exception. You're about to hear from Laura Spaulding and Cassiopeia Snowden. Laura and Cassiopeia are members of our legal advisory team. Laura is the director of the legal advisory team. She's a former lawyer and truly one of the most knowledgeable and experienced people you'll find anywhere about the business side of legal. Cassiopeia is a, a newer member of Laura's team, but as you'll hear, Cassiopeia comes to pursuit with a wealth of experience. She spent several years working at top law firms, including King and Spalding and also Paul Hastings, where, to use her words, she learned how law firms work. Together, Laura and Cassiopeia will cover why the shift to AFAs has been happening lately, including impact of AI on the business side of this relationship, uh, AFA types, pros and cons, uh, how to deal with unpredictability and changes in scope when dealing with an AFA, and also how to know if you're getting uh, a good AFA. So all that and lots more. Uh, I know you get a ton of value from today's episode. So as Jim always says, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. My name is Laura Spaulding. I head up our legal advisory team at Pursuit. A little bit about me. I am the biggest legal pricing and AFA nerd you'll ever meet. I love this stuff. It's my bread and butter. I was a lawyer before I joined Pursuit. I practiced corporate and commercial law. And then I came over and started working for Pursuit about three and a half years ago and have been working with clients during that time to help them transition from hourly rates over to AFA. AFAs and everything in between. So I'm excited to give you this session today. It's one that I've done many times, but today is a really, really special one. I'm so excited to have a new member of my team, Cassie or Cassiopeia, joining the session today. Cassie actually has been a pricing analyst at a number of really large law firms. She's got some amazing insights and perspective on the law firm view of AFAs, and I'm really looking forward to having her share that with you today. Uh, Cassie, welcome to your first webinar with me. Can you give us a, a little bit of background, tell us a bit of your story before we, we get started today? Yeah, thanks, Laura, and good morning and or afternoon to those of you here on the East Coast with me. Um, as Laura mentioned, my name is Cassiopeia Snowden, or Cassie for short. I recently started here at Pursuit a few months ago uh, on Laura's team here as a legal advisory um, member, and prior to that, I spent a couple of years between King and Spalding, Paul Hastings, so those top 25 AM laws there, um, and really just learning about what made a firm profitable, um, what, what makes them tick, right? So when you are sending out these RFPs and, and they're coming up with these proposals, you know, just how are they approaching those things? How can we be more efficient and knowledgeable and guaranteeing that we can provide the best services at the most competitive rates um, in today's 
playing field. So I'm really excited to be able to delve into the intricacies of all of that with you guys here and definitely respond to some questions and, and let you pick my brain. Thanks, Kelsey. All right, jumping into today's agenda. So this is an intro to AFAs. We have a number of webinars that dive a little deeper. We have an AFAs 201, and then we've got this kind of AFA university series, we call it, where we run individual uh, sessions on how AFAs can be applied in specific practice areas or with unique matter types. The most recent one that we ran was on IP litigation. So if this is a little more, you know, on the earlier side of the AFA journey for you, jump into some of our um, more um, advanced webinars on those topics. And I think we'll have a couple more coming up over the next couple of months. So today we're going to start with why the shift to AFAs. I'm sure that you've heard all of this before, but the perspective or the reasons for why we should be moving over to AFAs are evolving. And I want to touch on specifically the impact that AI is having on this shift today. I'm going to go through maybe the top six or seven AFAs, their pros and cons, and how you can actually expect them to apply to your different matter types. So some of them will go into a little more detail than others, but if you have questions or you want to kind of stay on one for a little bit, we'll be monitoring the Q&A. So you can ask your questions in the chat. The biggest obstacle to transitioning to AFAs, or the one that I hear the most is how do you deal with changes in scope? How does a, an AFA stand the length of the matter if the scope of work is constantly evolving and changing or if it's really unpredictable? So hold out to the end and we will cover that with you. And then another popular question is how to know if you're getting a good AFA. So we have the answers and that's what we're going to cover today. I'm going to leave quite a bit of time at the end for Q&A because I know this session always generates a lot of discussion. Ask your questions throughout and we might address them throughout. Otherwise, if we know we're going to talk about them, we will hold until the end. Okay, so let's start really high level. Why move away from hourly billing? I've talked about this a lot. You've heard it from me before. Cassie, I want to hear your perspective on this. Yeah, thanks. So essentially hourly billing in from a high level is just marrying kind of the idea of time is money, right? So um, I kind of tend to group together the first and the third reasons why um, it's more plausible to move away from hourly billing, uh, simply because it creates the idea that for firms, um, the more qualified my firm is or the more, you know, that their lawyers can provide me means I have to pay them more money, right? And for lawyers on the flip side of that coin, it's, well, the more I'm able to build, the more valuable I am to my firm, the the more, you know, I'm perceived as valuable in the market. And it kind of takes away a lot of the credibility of efficiency. So someone who is truly skilled in their craft may be able to do something um, for in a, a less, lesser amount of time, right? And so they should be compensated for that. And companies should be anticipating that these highly skilled lawyers are able to deliver these uh, favorable outcomes in a shorter period of time. Hence why, you know, they are kind of some of the best. Right. And then so in the middle of all of that, there is no cost predictability. So when you start to move away from, okay, you're sending me bills, 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 you know, how do I know if I'm getting an efficient firm? How do I know if 
you know, there's true transparency and honesty in the amount of work and time that it took to deliver that outcome. And so it, it gets pretty tricky when you're kind of in the gray area there. And so moving away from that hourly billing allows for timekeepers to be compensated for their outcomes as opposed to their efforts. And it does allow companies to know, hey, when I'm looking at my firms, I know roughly what these things should cost me. I can budget that and forecast for the future. And I know that I am going to be getting quality work. So that's just simply some of the few high-level ways or reasons why we should be rewarding less for time spent as opposed to actual effort and outcome. Thanks, Cassie. I like that perspective. We we talk ad nauseum about the benefits on the client side of shifting to AFAs. So I like to hear a little bit more about the law firm perspective. I know we've got some more content after this slide um, to dive into that. My view here is it's just a crappy way to work. It, it is. I mean, paying for time and effort over outcomes is outdated and does not incentivize the right practices by your firms. Obviously, quality is table stakes. Your firms are going to provide you with the best possible service. They should be incentivized by an outcome. And so we want to get the industry away from paying for effort over outcomes. The impact of AI on that is essentially accelerating us towards paying for outcomes. AI has a direct impact on the amount of effort that is being performed by lawyers, especially more junior lawyers have access to tools now that make them more efficient and allow them to speed up the delivery of their work. And so you can imagine the pressure that now puts on firms to create a different currency for the value of their work. And so time is no longer uh, a great currency for um, the value of legal services. And we want to move towards outcomes. So there are enormous benefits in shifting over to AFAs, cost predictability, number one. The things that people don't realize that AFAs allow is, and the things that I think are the greatest uh, benefits of AFAs are really that it kind of forces you and your firms to align on your expectations up front. So when you're operating under an AFA, scoping of the matter becomes really important and having a conversation with your firms about what your expectations are in terms of the phases and the deliverables that need to take place to reach an outcome is a really good way to get on the same page, to uncover any misalignments in your approach and to really understand the firm's strategy and what you're getting. So AFAs require a little bit more work up front and that's just the way it is. We have to scope out the matter and we have to have those conversations, but it does pay off down the track because you're not going back and reviewing timesheets over and over. And so the challenges, we have to acknowledge the challenges in shifting over to AFAs. There is more work at the outset of the engagement, because as I just said, you need to get better at scoping. You need to have these conversations up front. The billing systems and the billing approaches that we've been working with for the last 10, 15 years, they need to catch up. Some of the e-billing software is not set up to support, or most of it is not set up to support alternative fee arrangements. So you have to get a little bit creative there sometimes. There are solutions. Firms need to adjust to a new way of operating, but 
I think that firms have already been on this journey for quite some time. I mean, at Pursuit, we have had $9 billion worth of proposals go through the platform in the last five years. And during that time, about 80% of those proposals have been under an alternative fee arrangement. So this is not a new concept, particularly with the global 200 law firms. Hourly rates are easy to default back to, but they don't drive the right incentives. So we need to do a little bit of change management there and it requires a conversation. Cassie, in terms of the challenges on the law firm side, I know that's something that clients are really concerned about. Tell me a little bit about how the firms are responding to this shift or, or increase in, press, in pressure to shift towards AFAs and what does that mean for them and um, our clients? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just even on a, a global scale in, in the economy today, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty about what that will look like and what that means for businesses. And so as businesses are starting to really narrow down and really hone in on their spend, their legal spend, they're starting to want to implement things such as rate freezes. And that's kind of stringent on firms when, you know, they have increasing salaries. They also have increasing costs. We're seeing um, demand take a slight dip, as you can see here on the bubble. And then there's also, you know, an increase in the headcount, right? So the same way that the our companies have um, costs, so do these firms. Um, and so when you're meeting in the middle and you're supposed to be, oh, I, well, I want to negotiate my rates and I, I need a rate increase and I need these and I need these things, oftentimes rate increases are a long drawn out process, right? So they're stopping a lot of these bills going out. They're stopping a lot of the money coming in and everybody's just kind of at a standstill in the middle. So the happy medium is, well, I'll tell you what, we'll put the rates to the side for a while and we'll go ahead and start working off of our AFAs. If we can find a happy number where I know I can deliver that outcome, you see the value in that, we can keep proceeding with business as usual and we can take the nuances of, okay, how much per hour, how many hours are you putting in? And it can be a, hey, I need this done. You're my firm of choice. Um, can we come up with, you know, something that I know is cost predictable and I can build into my forecasting and it is within my budget. Everyone walks away happy. Thank you. So what are the different AFA models? Before we jump into the specific AFAs, their pros and cons, I like to start just by kind of setting the scene in terms of the spectrum of innovation when it comes to AFAs. So where are you on your AFA journey? So a lot of clients come to us with an objective to increase spend under alternative fear arrangements. There is a, a misconception that you need to jump right into fixed fees. There are lots of things that you can do in the hourly billing space to, to increase efficiencies and to mitigate some of the risk or exposure that you would have on just a typical budget estimate. So there are three AFA families and on a scale of innovation, you're starting with efficiency controlled hourly billing. So that's where you still have your bills driven by time and effort. You will have essentially a budget, but you might layer in a cap or a collar on top of that budget to control the spend and introduce a little bit of predictability. So that's still a really good place to start, especially if you are not as confident in the scope of work or the scope of work is incredibly unpredictable or complex. Starting with capped or collared fees at the phase level is a really good way to maintain a little bit of control more at a more granular level than just a capped fee for the entire matter or just a budget estimate or hourly rates. 
What we see most commonly at Pursuit uh, is in the fixed fee family. So there are a phase level fixed fees are the most common fee structure, particularly in litigation. So that's essentially where you ask your firms, of course, for a total fixed fee for the life of the matter. But what you're really looking at is that phase level fixed fee. So this is where you completely take time out of the equation and you want to know from your firms what is the cost to deliver this specific outcome or this phase or this deliverable or this task within this scope of work. So there is a misconception about fixed fees that they are essentially fixed, but a great fixed fee is actually very flexible when it comes to the evolving scope of work. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. On the other end of the scale, you've got value-based billing. And this is where I would love to see us get to as an industry. Value-based billing is essentially paying for outcomes, purely outcomes, paying for value. And so right now that takes the form of tools that can be laid into more traditional fee models like success bonuses, contingency fees, broken deal discounts. Some of those things are designed to allow the firm to get a little bit more where they deliver a specific outcome um, or in the context of broken deal discounts be potentially penalized where they're unable to deliver that outcome. Um, so value-based billing is essentially the goal, um, but all of these things still live within the AFA family. So when we talk about AFAs, it's important to remember that we're not just discussing fixed fees and that there are different approaches for different matter types, and it really depends on your objective and, and where you want to be. Kicking off with a capped fee. So we're starting at that efficiency controlled hourly billing stage. I want to talk a little bit about capped fees. I work with capped fees often and there is kind of an ideal approach. The pros of capped fees is that they're better than just asking for hourly rates or budget estimates because they give you a little bit of containment. They give you that cost predictability because you're saying to your firms, give me a budget estimate, but then tell me the cap that you're not going to go past. So it is a good way to make sure firms are efficient with their time and incentivized to stay below that cap. The problem with a capped fee or a traditional capped fee is that it puts all of the risk on your law firms, which isn't a good thing. The with the AFAs, your goal is to have equal risk sharing. So you want both parties getting the benefit of the AFA and sharing the same amount of risk in terms of the ability for that AFA to change. So if you've got one party assuming all of the risk, that party has no choice but to protect themselves from that risk. And so what your firms are going to do is increase the cap. They're going to have a really high cap that covers them from the risk of doing more work if the scope changes. And then they're going to be incentivized to hit that cap. So I've found capped fees to be less effective than fixed fees for this reason, because there's no risk sharing involved. And if the scope of work genuinely changes, your firms will still be limited by that cap. So a good way to adjust that is to build in a mechanism that allows firms to change the cap if the scope of work genuinely changes. So I'll show you in a moment what this looks like in terms of a litigation matter. But essentially, you want to say that here are our assumptions for this scope of work. And if those assumptions change, we can discuss actually changing the cap. And that means that there won't be so much risk on the firm. Another con is just that these are still driven by hourly rates. So you can have all of your firms that are proposing a capped fee have the same capped fee, but if their rate cards are 
different and not as competitive, then you're not necessarily getting an apples to apples comparison of how your firms are dealing with this matter. And so generally just poor incentives created, but again, so much better than just pure hourly rates or budget estimates. So this is what it looks like in the context of litigation. A great capped fee in litigation will have caps at the phases. So rather than a cap for the entire matter, you want to put a cap on each phase and you want your firms to bill you on completion of each phase. And so by having the cap at a more granular level, you maintain a little bit more control. And then you want to get an indication from the firms, the activities, the cost driving activities that are informing that cap. So for example, here, you've got expert depositions anticipate at least four, and your firms are telling you that $50,000 of this phase is the budget for those depositions. So if it turns out that you need more depositions, let's say you need 10, you know exactly how much the cap should change. And so it's only fair that the cap changes if the actual work to be done changes or the assumptions changes, but then otherwise you want to keep your firms within that phase-based cap. You also don't want to have a lot of fluidity between your phases. So if they save on one phase, set, let's say in this example, that they bill 200,000. So there's 72,000 under the cap. That's great. You don't want them to take that 72,000 and think that they can layer that into the next phase. That defeats the purpose. So if you're working with caps, keep them at the phase level and make sure that you've got some really tight quantified assumptions in there that allow you to talk about changing the cap if those assumptions change. And that way you won't end up with skyrocketing caps at the phase level so that the firms can protect themselves against any extra work that's needed to be done. Okay, Cassie, do you want to talk us through collared fees? Yeah, sure. So it essentially piggybacks off of the last statement you made where you don't want there to be too much fluidity from one phase to the next. You don't want your firms thinking that, oh, I can carry over this additional 70000 into, you know, the next phase. And that just means I can build more. I can be a little bit more lax in, in how we approach this part of the matter. So essentially what a caller fee does is it sets that cap but it lets the firms know, even if you come in a little bit under or a little bit above, we are still willing to work with you, right? So there's a little bit of risk sharing on both sides. So let's say the firm were to come under and it, it only took 70,000 or so. You guys have a cap of 100K, as you'll see outlined in the example below, there's a plus or minus 10K, right? So that's, okay, well, you came in at 70,000. We're willing to make up a little bit of that difference and reward you by giving you 10K. So we're still coming in 20,000 underneath the budget that we thought. And we really appreciate the hard work and the effort. And we see the achieved outcome. We'd like to reward you for that to maintain the relationship. And then let's say there is a, a large change of scope or just some inefficiencies along the way. And the firm comes and says, hey, some things drastically changed for us here. We're actually billing a little bit over. To kind of protect the client on that instance, the firms will say, okay, um, with that plus or minus 10K, right? So you'll pay the first $10,000 of that overage. But for everything after that, you should have agreed to some type of, of remedy, right? Whether that be an additional discount on the rates or it be you'll only pay the additional $10,000 in overage and the firms will have to just kind of take on the risk and write off the rest of it. 
So collared fees, it's a little bit more advanced beyond your traditional cap where you are starting to get into the ideas of efficiencies and, okay, if this deal were to go over, who assumes what and how much are we on the hook for? So it's a lot more cost predictable, but it definitely is a lot more incentivizing to your firms that, hey, if you do a really, really good job, like there is still some additional profit for you there on the table. Thanks, Cassie. Do you have an example of good colored fees that you've seen for specific matters? You know, I'm actually actually happy that you asked that. So I have um, modeled many, many AFAs and I have only ever done one collared fee. And it, it literally is just, it was just a, a typical budget estimate. So we put the collar in place and then it was um, 20% below or above. So if the firms came in 20% um, or less below that collared fee, then the client was in agreement to pay up to the collared fee difference. And then if they were over, they would only pay up to 20% of the difference um, between where we actually ended up billing and where the agreed cap was. So it wasn't as complex as this one where you had a set fixed fee that they were willing to pay above that collar or below that collar plus discounted rates. It literally was just a 20% deviation either way um, to, to fill in those gaps. So um, I've seen that done on, uh, you know, I'm not even going to try to quote the practice group because I don't want to misspeak, um, but it, it really isn't that, it really isn't as common as you would say. Once you start getting into that level of granularity, I typically see um, that we start going towards matter fixed fees or fixed fees in general. Um, which I can see. Functioning in this moment. Just give me yeah. one. <laughs> there we go. All right. Sorry, we're back. Okay. Yeah, no, actually, so I was going to um, kind of segue into the next type of fee. So once you start thinking a little bit about the complexities of a collared fixed fee, a lot of firms and clients tend to come to the table and say, okay, let's take discounted rates off of the table. If we're going to talk about setting a, an exact fee for this matter, let's just do it all in, right? So I'm going to pay you this hard line number. And so firms will come and say, okay, for this particular matter in a whole, all inclusive based on the scope being and, and the assumptions and what we know to be achievable from our previous interactions here, we're fine with saying this number is a fair number for value as well as attainability. Um, and that is a pro because of course you avoid having to deal with rate increases, right? So if you got a matter that's stemming multiple years, I don't have to worry about holding my bills because I need to see what January's time goes for. I know all in, this is my bottom line for this number, regardless of what the market's doing with law firm rates at that time. You do get the cost predictability. So ahead of time, you know exactly what it is that you should be anticipating to pay. Um, and then, of course, our competitive RFP processes will help you kind of hone in on who can give you the value and who is actually putting forward a fair um, market assessment of what this type of matter will cost you. Now, the cons on this side is that, you know, clients do bear the risk of overpaying, right? So let's just say you've got a really efficient firm or that a matter settles in, in the earlier stages of it, the client is on the hook to pay that agreed amount. There isn't kind of the, the written bylaws of, okay, if this settles early, then you don't pay anything further beyond that. 
And then you'll need to be very, very specific and sure about your scope here. Now, of course, we can add that flexibility in as we'll talk about a little bit later. But in this phase, this is probably just the easiest introduction to kind of regrouping like and kind of reworking the wiring around, oh, I need to, to build hourly. And this will be your, your intro into that. Um, and, and it works well for matters such as, you know, um, if you need to do privacy ma matrices, right? So this is something that's done commonly. It's pretty easy to kind of scope. It's a very common thing that's done. So most firms would be able to pull together a, a good estimate of where they think they can land and how they can staff it. And clients have a really good idea. You know, you don't necessarily need the degree to know how um, something like this would be carried out. So when you're running these RFP processes, as you can see here, everybody's kind of within the same ballpark because the assumptions are really easy to assume and you know you're kind of getting an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, so these matter, these all in fixed fees uh, work for matters where you've got a really clear and defined scope of work that's unlikely to change and where the value is like relatively minor. So, I mean, $100,000 is not minor, but if you've got, you know, a $50,000 advice project or $20,000 advice um, or a hotline arrangement, you can do an all in fixed fee without too much risk of um, overpaying or underpaying. I just wouldn't do this on a, for example, a litigation where you say, give me one fixed fee for the entire litigation. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about how to use fixed fees in more complex matters where you do have an evolving scope of work and you don't know necessarily the trajectory of that matter. So if, if we've lost you, if we've bored you to tears, now is the time to come back and listen in. This is the, the go-to fee arrangement for most complex matters or most um, matters where you've got a number of different phases and deliverables that take place over a, a longer period of time. So we see this working most commonly in litigation. And this is where you're asking your firms for a fixed fee at each phase of the deliverable. So in litigation, obviously, that's everything from initial case assessment through to a trial and even appeal sometimes in M&A that's everything from the assessment of the deal term sheets all the way through to due diligence and closing and post-closing um, so you want to break up your scope of work by a phase and you want to get a fixed fee that's binding for each phase and then at the end of each phase or on completion of each phase your firm will send you a bill for that fixed fee as long as the assumptions within that phase have stayed the same. Um, so the pros are that this gives you an enormous amount of predictability and control. So you don't necessarily know what your final bill is going to be at the end of the matter because you don't know where the matter is going to go. Is it going to settle early? Is the deal going to go through? Um, but you do get control for the individual outcomes that are being delivered along the way. So you can organize your budgets around that. Your firms can organize their staffing around that and they get the predictability so far as their profitability and their capacity. And so the pros are there's less risk on the client to pay, overpay for the work because you're only paying on completion of each phase. You don't have to worry about timesheet review because you get an invoice that is simply just, it can be an itemized invoice for the activities that took place, but really it can just be that fixed fee for the phase. You get cost predictability. And when you go into a competitive RFP process with proposals that are under this type of fee arrangement, 
you get a really good sense of how those firms compare at the phase level. So you can see the firms that are the most efficient, that are going to be the most efficient in the earlier areas. And you don't have to worry about things like front loading of matters that are likely to settle. Cons are that this takes a little bit of work up front. So you have to be able to scope your matters and provide assumptions. Even if you don't know what the assumptions should be, it's more about giving the firms the units or the information that they need to give you a fixed fee that is reflective of some scope of work. You can build in later the mechanism again that allows for the fixed fee to change if the scope changes, but you have to give them something to start with. So you've got to be more detailed with your scope of work and your assumptions. And if you're if you aren't very detailed and your phases are too broadly defined and you're asking for a fixed fee for something that is not very specific, then your firms are going to capture all the possible activities again to cover their risks so they might inflate their fixed fee so it can be done it just requires a little bit of work up front but it definitely pays off in the end to show you an example of what this looks like similar to our capped fee but this is a fixed fee so time spent effort who's working on the matter is irrelevant when it comes to the bill at the end of the day so you've got a phase-based fixed fee. So that's 65,000 for initial case assessment and 45,000 for pre-trial pleadings and motion practice. Those are your binding fixed fees. The information beneath it is what's allowing us to understand where the price is broken out so that if the assumptions change, I don't have to say, well, how much extra time did you spend and let's increase the price accordingly. I can just go straight back to this unit pricing and I can say, well, there were a thousand extra documents. So when we told you there were 2000 and now there's 3000, I can see what the 2000 costs. So let's just increase the price by that. You want to minimize the back and forth and the negotiation that you might have to continue to have with your firms if the scope changes. Okay, portfolio fixed fees. So essentially a portfolio fixed fee is where you have a number of like matters that you want to bundle in and get a fixed fee. So this works really well for, I think I've got an example on the next slide. E-discovery is a great example. It's your high volume, low value work that is tends to be repetitive, that doesn't particularly deviate in scope in a way that is really material to the overall cost or the work that's involved. It also works really well for the type of work where your firms build efficiencies, but the more they do it. So a portfolio fixed fee is just a really clean fixed fee for a portfolio of matters that the firm may take on in a particular period of time. So that gives you the ultimate cost predictability. It avoids having to go back and forth every time a new matter comes up and have a new engagement negotiation. And it's incredibly easy to deal with bills and invoices when you're operating under a fixed fee. Again, this is one of those ones where it has to be a specific type of matter that works for a portfolio fixed fee. Otherwise, there's a couple of risks associated. So first, it can tend to set up for incentives because your firms are trying to create efficiencies so that they can maximize their profitability under a fixed fee. So you want to make sure, I mean, quality is table stakes. We always say that, but you want to make sure that your incentives are always aligned to the desired outcome. 
Firms could deploy low-cost resources. So again, I've never seen this necessarily become an issue when operating with AFAs. I know it's a concern to worry about um, leaving the staffing up to the firm. If you're not paying by hourly rates, you don't know, is it a partner on my work? Is it an associate? Let the firms resource the way that they need to reach the outcome and focus on the outcome, not necessarily who's doing the work. Um, potentially, you lose that granularity in billing data if you're operating on such a high level fixed fee and both parties bear quite a bit of risk if something does change. Portfolio fixed fees are great if you have an idea of volume. If you have, for example, this e-discovery portfolio every year, you've probably got a really strong sense of how much volume needs to go to the firm. You want to have one firm or maybe a panel of three firms involved in work like this. So in this example, we've said, if we give you this percentage of the volume, tell us what your fixed fee would be. And that allows us to capture volume discounts. So e-discovery is a really good Example of this, other examples I can think of is perhaps I've seen it in employment relations, number of demand letters per year, for example, you bundle that into a portfolio and you say on average every year we have between 50 to 70 of these matters, give us an annual fixed fee. Um, and it doesn't matter if that ends up being, you know, 41 year and maybe 70 the next, it all works out under that fixed fee and the ease of administration makes it worth it. Cassie, fee schedules. Yes, so our, our fee menus or our line item task-based uh, fixed fees are really good and filling the gap when you don't know just how much volume you're going to have. So these would be best for going to your firms and saying, hey, like in your, in your IP departments, right? I've got repetitive tasks that are something that we know will be occurring multiple times through a year. They're pretty lightweight on cost or staffing. And we just want to know how much every time I need you to do it, it's going to cost. It's, it's as simple as that. So it's really kind of um, getting that defining number to every task or repetitive um, action that needs to happen every time um, one of these matters or things arises. And, and this works really well for like utility patents and your visas, um, just things again that are um, high volume, but low cost work. Um, now, it does provide the cost predictability because I do know every time that I need to um, engage my firm on this, I have an idea of just how much it is that they're going to charge me. Um, there is less frequent negotiation, right? So we've already done the scoping. I've already said, hey, here is the pricing, or my firms have already told me this is a pricing for low complexity, medium, high. We've already defined those complexity levels, what that means to us. As long as there is no, there is really no room for material deviation there, right? Because either it's going to fall into one of these three buckets of complexity or, or one of these tasks that we've already discussed. And then it's just fair on both sides, right? So no matter how much volume I give you, how little or how much, it, it is the same fixed fee that we are both happy and um, in agreement on. Now, Yes, this does kind of um, limit you on the ability to like access volume discounts. So as volume increases, there's not necessarily the option to come and say, hey, I know we said this fixed fee, but because I've given you 100,000 of these this year, can we can we cut that in, into some percentage? Um, that definitely is an option here to use any one of these arrangements with additional components, um, but that's not intrinsically um, built into it here. Um, and then, so it's just kind of 
have to account for all the activities as well. So if you did a full-on fee menu, you'd have probably 100 pages of action items that could uh, you could be billed for in that given year. So it's just really important to kind of come to your firms and, and talk about the high and, and most seen, most common activities here. So. All right. And so the last two are in the value-based fee family. We'll just touch on these really quickly before we jump in. I've got a lot of questions coming through. I want to leave time for them. Yeah, awesome. So just with like success bonus, success bonuses, excuse me. This is just another one of those ways that I said you can take any of the previously mentioned AFAs and start layering them in with additional incentives for your firms to make sure that you're achieving the outcomes that you're looking for at the value that you believe they should be billed at. So success bonuses simply says, hey, let's define what success means to us here. It doesn't always have to mean a win. It doesn't always have to mean zero liability. It could be a number of things in between. And should the firm achieve that, then we're willing to pay this amount. And there can be various different levels of success, various different um, payouts or incentives for the firm to achieve those. And then with contingencies, so this is, it's really good one when you're trying to recover, say a value. There could be, again, various levels of recovery here achieved in a matter. You can go to your firms and say, yes, I will pay this fixed fee for this matter. But should you achieve a, B, or C level of recovery for me, then I'm willing to share those profits with you as well. All right, so we've covered the pros and cons of some of the top AFAs. I hope that that gives you a little bit of a, a more tactical path forward with AFAs. If you have a matter on your desk right now, I challenge you to think about which of the AFAs we spoke about today might be the best fit. And to get you started, I just want to cover scoping a little bit because we talked about throughout the session today that there's going to be more work required up front. And I want to be clear about what this means. Scoping is probably the biggest barrier to harnessing AFAs. So what I mean by that is a lot of lawyers haven't quite yet built this muscle where you need to identify your scope of work and be really clear about that with your firms. And that means that sometimes when you dive into an AFA or you ask for a fixed fee or a cap without having properly completed a scoping exercise, you might end up paying more or increasing the risk on either party to overpay or underpay or just generally creating confusion and tension in your law firm relationships. I know, Cassie, you can probably remember a couple of scenarios in your law firm experience where you've got clients who want to work with an AFA, but they send over a scope of work that is so vague and broad that it makes it really difficult for you to understand how you should price this matter without just diverting back to your hourly rates and time spent. Um, yes. Um, and fortunately, firms are starting to like, they want to work with these AFAs. They want to work with the clients. Everyone wants that certainty. So they're starting to be, to uh, come up with innovative ways in which they can kind of um, research just exactly what we think our assumptions should be and help the client along the way with building out their scope and understanding exactly what it is they need to ask for. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a roadmap for you. If you're new to scoping or before you start to negotiate your AFA on your next matter, start with a really detailed background or information about the matter. 
there's the more information, the better. When you're asking firms to provide you an AFA, contextual information is helpful. Giving them examples of previous like documents or the format of the advice that you're expecting can be a really good way um, for them to feel confident in their fixed fee. Because if you want them to get away from time as the measure of value you have to give them a good sense of what are the actual outcomes that we're striving for and what are the activities that will need to take place to get there if you have a sequential scope of work defining the milestones or phases is really important if it's an advice project or something more transactional defining the deliverables is really important so in something complex it's usually milestones and phases and then the deliverables or the outcome within those milestones or phases then the trickiest part in the whole scoping process is to identify the five or 10 major cost driving activities. So what are the things that are really material to cost? And so I don't mean how many times do I need to have a phone call with you? How many times are you going to drive back and forth to the courthouse? What I mean are what are the significant activities that take place that actually um, have a material impact on that fee? And so that's usually things like the number of witness interviews or depositions. That's the number of documents to be reviewed in a transaction. That might be the deal value or the number of parties involved, the number of primary agreements and where the negotiations are at currently with a term sheet or how far along in due diligence we are, or what we expect that to look like. So identify what the activities the firm will be doing that will help them inform their price. It will also help them manage their resourcing and make sure that you have the right team ready and mobilized to deliver that outcome. Then you want to define the framework. So thinking ahead, now that I've defined this scope of work and the key cost driving activities and I've quantified them, if these change, what happens? And so setting that framework or that mechanism up front will save you time later. At Pursuit, all of our RFP templates have an example material deviation clause in them, but I'm going to address that on the next slide as well. Then once you've done that process, it's just about selecting the fee type that matches your scope of work and your objectives. You can still ask firms to provide hourly rates if you want something out of scope. And then when you have defined all of that, it's a great opportunity to go out and run a competitive RFP process because it creates an environment where you're going to end up having apples to apples proposals. So this is our scoping 101. And starting here will set you up for success in negotiating an AFA. So getting a lot of questions through, I think I've had multiple questions right now about if you're not using, if you're not comparing rates, how do you know you're actually getting a good AFA? So that's one question. The other question I'm getting a lot is how do you actually manage changes in scope throughout the throughout the process. So we've talked about material deviation. What does that actually look like? So a really good AFA is flexible. I think I said that earlier with a fixed fee, the best fixed fees are flexible. So if you're asking your firms to identify a fixed fee, you still want to capture the unit pricing for those key cost driving activities that will help you inform later on how the price should change if those activities change, the number of them changes. You don't want to be going back and forth about changing the price for every 
thing that changes. You want to set a little bit of a threshold there, and we call that a material deviation trigger. And so what we say is that's about a 30% increase or decrease in the assumed quantity of activities. So in this example, you've got 20 witness statements. If there's 21, well, that's not a 30% increase or decrease. So that's the risk sharing. We just pay for the, the price for the 20. But if there ends up being 30, then of course, that's more than the 30% increase. So we go back and we look at that unit price for the original 20, and we know exactly how much we need to change the price for. So that's how you address changes in scope. Oh my gosh, my slides are doing that thing again, where they just go crazy. All right. And then the second question, which is how do you know you're actually getting a good AFA? Well, let the market tell you. Let the market tell you what the cost should be for this specific scope of work. Um, prices fluctuate throughout the year. Firm capacity has an impact on pricing. Um, how many lawyers do they have on the bench? How much does this firm actually want your work? So bidding that work out, significant matters under an AFA at the matter level is the best and frankly, the only way that you can determine if you're getting a really good AFA is by collecting multiple proposals under the same fee arrangement and comparing that before you make a selection decision. Add to that, if you, if you can get those apples to apples proposals and then introduce a little bit of transparency into that process via a real-time bidding event, a virtual pricing room, a reverse auction. So that's essentially 30 minutes to one hour where you let the firms actually see, here's how your price compares to your peers. And if you want an opportunity to revise your price to be more competitive, now's the time. This isn't a race to the bottom. We've got to remember that our firms are still understanding how to price their work in this outcome-driven environment where they are not going back and just looking at time spent. So if we really want to transition there, they, you know, they're not always going to get it right. So being giving them access to their peer and their market pricing to inform their pricing is a really good way to make sure that you generate a market price. Um, somebody asked me about shadow billing. Do you still receive invoices with line item narratives and time spent or is that practice abandoned? So that's a great question. We don't recommend collecting shadow bills with your AFAs as a way to determine whether your AFAs were valuable at the end of the matter. The reason for that is because AFAs encourage or incentivize firms to completely shift the way that they think about resourcing. They no longer have this pressure to have really senior lawyers and partners doing work on matters that more junior or mid-level associates could be doing. So they can better leverage their resourcing because they're not under pressure to maximize the build time. And so when they operate under an AFA, they have the freedom to get the right people working on the right matters. And if you if they do that and then they provide you a shadow bill and you compare that with your AFA, your shadow bill will almost always look like you would have got a better deal under hourly rates. But the reality is that if you were working under hourly rates, the incentives would be different. And so the bill at the end of the day would be very different. Another thing people ask is, well, how do you make sure you're going to get quality if you just leave it up to the firms to decide who at the firm does the work? I've never met a firm that doesn't view quality as table stakes. Cassie, I'm sure you can agree that in your experience, has there ever been a situation where you've got lawyers deprioritizing client work under AFAs or not caring as much about the result for work under AFAs. 
No, and, and there's a lot more when you're dealing with curating those AFAs. There's a lot more, I think, care and thought that goes into staffing those matters than if it were just an hourly build matter, right? Because you want to make sure that you're still maintaining that quality. So we definitely know, hey, if this is a high risk thing. We have to have our more senior partners on it. They'll definitely be put on it. And whether that kind of eats a little bit into the profitability of that matter, it's just kind of something that the firm, you know, just has to has to deal with, right? Because you don't want to kind of damper the representation of the, the firm and the client just for, you know, the matter of a dollar at the end of the day. All right. I have a couple of questions here. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. So what is the most efficient way to approach law firms about converting existing matters billed on an hourly basis to AFAs? Cassie, I might let you take that one. From your experience, what's the best way for a client to approach an active matter, an existing matter that's under an hourly arrangement, and perhaps renegotiate or transition to an AFA without hurting the relationship? Definitely. So you can come to, you can go to your firm and say, hey, we've been billing this matter at, it's been going on for this duration of time. We've got a good idea of how, you know, we've had to staff it or how it's been playing out. And we just like a little bit more cost predictability around it, right? So if we know that we've had roughly X, Y, and Z bills every month, because there needs to be this much time and whatever we're putting into it, coming to your firm and saying, I would like to kind of streamline that and just make sure that I'm able to budget for, you know, the duration of this matter, or even saying, well, actually, I'd like to challenge you guys and say, on the other end of this, I'd like to offer you some of the recovery or something like that. And, and it kind of changes the way that you're able to um, approach the pricing of that. Because of course, the firms are willing to do some type of holdback or different arrangement if at the end of the day, the client is willing to offer them some types of some type of, of reward for doing so. So it, it literally could be just as simple as saying, hey, we need some cost predictability. You guys would like to share in the savings. Let's, re, let's renegotiate the terms of the matter. Yeah. And so the last question I've got here is which types of matters do AFAs and RFPs work best? Is it mainly litigation? My answer to that is I've never met a matter that I couldn't establish an AFA for. Cassie, what's your perspective on that? No, I um, definitely think we see things just as, as small as general advice, right? So, hey, I maybe just need to pick up the phone five hours out of the month and, and talk to someone. What does that look like? We negotiate uh, fixed fees for that all the time. <laughs> um, so is this as simple as something as small as, can I put you on retainer for a couple of hours a month? It's something that could fit into this model um, just as much as, hey, I need you to do this massive global um, compliance you know, matter for me. And that's something that we can fit into here as well. I've seen countries be sued under an AFA. So that's where we start seeing our contingencies and our success fees kind of be built into those models as well. So it literally, it's not one size fits all. It's anything and everything. As long as you and your firm are happy and aligned, it can be fit into an AFA. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this webinar today. I've just put a poll up on the screen because I'm really curious. We, we give a lot of these webinars and I'd love to know, are these helpful for you? I, is there something tangible that you've been able to take away from this? 
do you want to talk about it more? Would you like to have the pursuit team reach out and we can explore any of this more? I'm happy to have conversations with anyone. I know Cassie, you are too. Or did we just miss the mark or are you just not convinced? I mean, you can't win them all. So thanks, Cassie, for, for joining. This was awesome. I want to do more of these. Yeah, no, thank you for having me today. It's been fun and I can't wait to see the feedback so we can uh, improve and, and better help everyone understand the transition um, into this kind of world that we work in. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.